You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Well, welcome to the book of Malachi this morning. We are studying this short prophet, this minor prophet, and you might be asking, why? Why did you choose Malachi? Why do we need to study this book? Well, I'm glad that you asked. You see, the answer this morning lies in the background to Malachi. The background and the context of Malachi makes this book and its message relevant to you and me today. It has a powerful message for people who are living in a society where relationships for God and reverence for God has grown complacent. Where apathy runs rampant among the culture, the book of Malachi has a great message both for the people of God and for the people who need God. So I'm excited this morning to be able to dive into this book with you. Let's start with looking at the background, the background to Malachi, and let's start with the man who brings the message. There's very little information about Malachi. We don't know very much about this man at all. In fact, some scholars even wonder if this is really an actual man named Malachi or if it's not just the message that a man of God brings. You see, the, the, the word Malachi, his name, it actually means my messenger. That's it, simply, my messenger. The Greek equivalent for his name here in this book is angelos. Angelos is translated angel or messenger of God in the Greek language. And so Malachi, we, we don't know if he was a, a literal uh, well, we know he was a literal man, but we don't know if this was his actual name or if this is just what he was called, the messenger, my messenger that God sent to his people. Basically, Malachi was written during or shortly after the times of Nehemiah, the governor, and Ezra, the priest. The people of Israel had returned from Babylon, where they had been in captivity for 70 years, and they returned there to the city of Jerusalem, and the land that was theirs under the governorship, first of all, of Zerubbabel. While the temple of Jerusalem had been completed by Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, the city walls had been rebuilt by Nehemiah, the, go- the governor that came after Zerubbabel. And the, and the pe- but the people, the city was doing good, but the people were not doing so good. They were neglecting their relationship with the Lord. You see, after coming back to the land and rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city, they began to take their eyes off of the Lord. And they began to put them on themselves. And they began to care only about their situation. And they neglected their relationship to the Lord. And so in turn, as they parted ways with the Lord and began to uh, look to other things to fulfill them, their relationship with the Lord became complacent. They became apathetic in their walk with the Lord. And as a natural result, corruption began to set in. Corruption began to set in. And as they began to look around, they said, you know what? Life is not really that great. Life isn't all it's cracked up to be. It's not fulfilling me the way that I thought this was going to go. I thought we were going to come back from Babylon. I thought we were going to establish this city once again, and then we thought the Messiah was going to come, he was going to rescue us, he was going to set up his kingdom, and things were going to be peachy. Things were going to be great. But all of those expectations, they fell through. 
They didn't come, they didn't happen the way that they thought it was going to happen. And so this brings us now to the message of Malachi. Malachi enters the scene, my messenger, God's messenger, sent to the people, and he doesn't waste words. Malachi cuts straight to the heart of the spiritual matter. He goes straight to the problems that Israel is experiencing. Now, while God had remained faithful to his word and to his promises, Israel, you see, was sinking further and further into complacency and sin. Those problems included six things that are disputes in the book of Malachi. Those disputes are on the screen for you. The first one is doubting God's love. We'll be covering that dispute today. The second dispute was dishonoring God's name. The third dispute was disregarding their relationship with God. And the fourth dispute was degrading the holiness of worship. Followed by defrauding the Lord's resources and despising the grace of God. That last dispute there in the book of Malachi. Now the message of Malachi is unique from the other minor prophets. In the sense that it comes to us in the form of these several disputes between God and the people, with the people uh, answering God in the form of questions and sometimes statements. In fact, we might look at the book of Malachi as if it were a sort of a people's court. Anybody ever seen people's court on television? You know, those afternoons you get a little bit bored and you're like, hmm, let's see what's on. And you're like, wow, people's court, this is pretty interesting. And you've got Judge Judy, right? And she's just basically laying the law down, right? Judge Judy. Well, think of this not as Judge Judy, but as Judge Jesus. Okay, Judge Jesus comes into the courtroom, and there are these six different disputes where God will make a claim. He presents a claim to the people. The people dispute that claim in the form of questions, and then God responds to their dispute. So God, in the book of Malachi, will be both plaintiff and judge, and as the judge, he always has the final word. Let's remember that. Just as Judge Judy always has the final word, Judge Jesus will have the final word. So it would, we would do well if we were to remember that as we begin this study. We also would do well to remember this as we, we begin the study. Not only does God, our judge, have the final word over our lives, but we also realize that God is so gracious and loving. Why? Because he takes the time to actually listen to the dispute of the people and to respond to them. You know, there's no other gods uh, throughout the, the history of humankind that have this kind of patience and love and humility. To take the time to respond to the disputes. You know, we, we, we read so much of how uh, many of these religions, these pagan religions, man, their, their gods are ruthless. They're barbaric. They're impatient and unloving. And yet in contrast to that, we see the God of Malachi, our God, as being a God who takes the time to listen and to respond to his people. He's a patient God. So let's cover the first dispute in the book of Malachi this morning. Our main theme of this message will be doubting God's love. Do you doubt God's love? That's the title of our sermon. So let's go ahead and read the first five verses of Malachi with me. Malachi 1, 1 through 5 says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. 
I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? There's the dispute. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Verse 4, even though Edom has said we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, The Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Guys, this is a scripture in which God is desiring to tell His people that simply He loves them. Now, there is a lot of doctrine in this passage Paul the Apostle will use this passage later in Romans chapter 9 and 10 and 11. There is uh, uh, even passages in the other prophets that, that deal with this passage as well. But listen, this morning I want us to just simply listen to the message of Malachi, which is the message of God for his people. And that is that God is loving. Or first of all, that God loves his people. That's our first point this morning. God loves his people. He says that very simply in verse 2a. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. And that's our first sub-point this morning. I want to I touch on this. I want to focus on this. God is loving. If you fill in that blank there, the, the word is loving. God is loving. Now when God says there, I have loved you, that phrase is one word in the Hebrew text. And it is in the perfective aspect of the verb to love. What that means is that when God says he's loved Israel, he's talking about an action that is complete, it is total, it has no reference to time, it's no, there's no beginning, there's no end, it just is. And you know what, that just blows my mind. Because <laughs> my finite little brain, which is smaller than most of yours, I guarantee it, my finite brain cannot get wrapped around how there's no beginning to this love. And there's no end to it. God just says, I've loved you. Period. And it's not attached to time. It's, it's attached to his character. It's attached to his nature. Now the New Living Translation has translated that same phrase in a way that captures uh, more clearly for me what God is saying to Israel. It says this. It says, I have always loved you. <laughs> so it's not just I have loved you. God says, I have always. And that's more of the sense here. God's just saying, I've always loved you, Israel. The Bible clearly teaches that not only is our God a good, righteous, and holy God, He is first and foremost a loving God. God is a loving God. This fact is implied all throughout Genesis. The, the book, the very first book of the Bible where we find the history about God and His intents and purposes for mankind. Just take a second with me and imagine this morning. That you were Adam, if you're a male, or Eve, if you were a female. And, and put yourselves in the shoes of Adam and Eve for a second. Sin has not entered the world. Everything is perfect. You're living in a paradise. And, and, and the first thing you realize is that, wow, God has made this to bless us. 
God made this whole place to bless us. I mean, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever had dreams about paradise or not. I, I frequently have a dream about paradise in which, and you guys are going to think I'm weird, but I just got to come clean with you. But, you know, I, I frequently have dreams about paradise being like a grassy meadow, you know. And I'll be on a horse, usually a white horse, and I'll be galloping across that meadow, you know. Like this, kind of like a scene out of Lord of the Rings, maybe. I don't know, but I just think that's, that's, that would be amazing, you know. Paradise. I don't know what you guys think of when you think of paradise. Everybody probably has their own dream, their own <laughs> inspiration. But, but that's what Adam and Eve were put into. Why? Because God loved them. He said, I love you guys. I created you to have a relationship with me. And I made all of this for you to enjoy. There, there was no mosquitoes. There was no ticks and Lyme disease. There was, no, there was none of that bad stuff to, you know, no spiders to scare you, scare you out of the car or whatever it is. You know, none of that kind of stuff. It was just God, or, or maybe they were there, but they had a different purpose. I'm sorry, let me clarify. But it was all meant to bless. There was no curse. There was no curse. That's what we get. That's the love of God that is implied. That's His goodness. It's implied in the very beginning of the Bible. And it goes all the way through the Bible. But in, in starting back in the, book of, in the second book of the Torah, the book of Exodus, we find the fact not only implied, but it becomes explicit. God declares to Moses in Exodus 34, 6, that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Notice these adjectives. Merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth. God who cannot lie, tells us he is merciful, he is gracious, he's patient, and he abounds in goodness and truth, all characteristics that come from true love. They only come from true love. We would not know true love if it were not for these kind of declarations that God makes. Who here wouldn't want these kinds of things shown to them all the time? Who here can say, yeah, I'd just rather pass up on the patience. You can pass on the patience for me, Lord. (laughs) Okay. Let's move away from you, you know. (laughs) We don't know what's going to happen next. Who wants to pass up on mercy? Not getting what we do deserve. Not me, surely. Who wants to pass on grace? Oh, not me. Listen, guys. Uh, I just want to share a quick personal story with you about how God's love is so personal in our lives. It abounds in goodness and truth. Uh, You know, as a pastor and a human being, I often have tension in my life between who I really am as a man, the sinful struggles that I have, the temptations I face, the falls that I have in my life, and my calling to be a man of God as a pastor. As a man who stands before you and preaches the word of God. So there's that tension going on in my life frequently. And you know, there's, there's been times as a pastor, true confession here, where I feel like I am totally unworthy to stand in front of you guys and to preach a sermon. And there's a few times in my life where I have thought, you know what, I just can't keep doing this. I don't, I, I'm not worthy. I can't, I, you know, to stand here before you guys and, and, to, and to preach God's word is an amazing privilege in and of itself. 
to represent the Lord is an even greater thing in my mind. And it, there's a heavy responsibility that comes with that. But, but in, in one of those moments where I was really sensing, man, I just need to, I need to pick a different career. I need to look for a branch, into, segue into a different career, into a different calling. And that night, the Lord uh, woke me up at precisely... 4.44. I, I look at the clock when I wake up. You guys probably do too. But it was 4.44. And I remember thinking, oh, that's interesting. It's 4.44. And, it was, and, and in that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to me it, through my conscience, which he often does. And he said, Luke, 4.44. And I thought, oh, that's funny. I think the Lord just spoke to me, Luke, 4.44. <laughs> you know. And I thought, you know what? Luke 4 probably doesn't even have 44 verses in it. And I rolled over and tried to go back to sleep. But you know what? The Lord didn't let me go back to sleep. He kept flashing that in my mind. You know, I'm not going to be able to sleep until I figure this out. So I got up and I grabbed my Bible and I opened it up to Luke chapter 4, verse 44. And the NIV version actually says that he kept on preaching in Galilee. And, and so it was the Lord just prompting me and just in a loving way, in a personal way, just saying, Phil, I want you to keep on preaching. And it was a special thing in my life, you guys. But that is how God abounds in goodness and truth. That's how he loves on us with mercy, not giving me what I deserved. I deserve to be booted. Boom. Straight out. I don't deserve to have this calling in my life. I don't deserve to be in this position. But the Lord has chosen me. He's called me. And he's reaffirmed his love to me on several occasions. And it's a beautiful thing. It's part of that relationship that God has with those that know him. Now, in the New Testament, we're told by the Apostle John, who hung out with Jesus for three years, that God is love. Check this out. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for... God is love. Check that out. God is love. Now that's an indisputable truth. It's an indisputable truth. It's proclaimed in the Old Testament. It's proclaimed in the New Testament. And it is reflected in the lives of those that know God. Coming back now to Malachi 1, we see that this truth had become, it's an indisputable truth, but now it has become a doubt in the mind of God's people. Check it out in Malachi 1 verse 2. The second part there says, "Yet you say, in what way have you loved us?" So the people are questioning. The people are going, "Yeah, you say you love us, God, but how have you loved us?" They've called into doubt God's love. I ask you this question this morning. Have you ever doubted God's love? You know, this is a way that the enemy works together with our sinful nature to sow doubt in our hearts, in our minds. It's one of the attacks of the enemy. It's one of those fiery darts that Satan will often fling into our minds right when we're going through something and God doesn't meet our expectations. And we look and we say, you know what? I really don't know if God loves me. I really don't know if God is there. And I think if we're honest, we have all doubted God's love. And we all go through bouts where we tend to doubt God's love, perhaps. There may be even some today who are asking this question now. Perhaps because of the circumstances in your life. Things that are happening in your world, on your level. And you're going, how have you loved me, God? 
How, how are you there for me? That brings us to our second point, this, our sub-point this morning. And that is that God has always loved Israel. God has always loved Israel. And this is really a reminder more than anything else. But this is something that we need to understand is part of the very fabric of the history of Israel. God has always loved them. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. The verses are on the screen. Follow along with me. Listen to what God says. God says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Listen, those verses show us something about God. The problem was that God's love didn't always seem to meet the expectations of the Israelites. Okay? God, without a doubt, always loved them. He says He chose them based on His love. Based on, on, on not, not anything they had done, not because they were greater than anybody else. He just chose them because He loved them. It was by His grace. But the problem here in Israel when Malachi comes on the scene is that the Israelites felt that God wasn't meeting their expectations. And that seems to be the most common reason why people today doubt God's love as well. Because of our sinful nature, we have sinful expectations. We have an idea in our mind of what God should do to show His love to us. Hook it up, Lord, right? That's what we're thinking, you know. Hook up the cash, <laughs> hook up the job, hook up the, you know, the, the house, hook up the whatever it is that I feel that I need for you to show me love. And when those expectations don't get met, or if we're sick, like I was this last week, and, and, and God doesn't bring immediate healing like we want, hey, sometimes our expectation is not met, but sometimes we don't realize that's not God's expectation. That's not God's solution. So we need to understand that. Now, the people in Israel had stopped their relationship. They had, lo- they had neglected their relationship with the Lord. It wasn't the other way around. You see, God had not neglected His faithfulness, mercy, and grace towards the people. It was the other way around. We're going to move now to our second point this morning. Our second point is that God's love is demonstrated by election, by his election. And this is where we get into some of the doctrine in this passage. And trust me, guys, the time that I have this morning, there's, I, I, there, I bit off way more than I can handle in the time that we have. So I'm just going to, I'm going to go through this, and it's not going to be a thorough presentation of the doctrine of election by any means, but... I ask you to stay with me and to understand that God didn't mean for this passage to cause confusion. God didn't give this passage so that people would go, well, what does he mean? And dissect it and try to wrap our finite minds around election. God gave us this passage to be a comfort to you and to me. So let's read it. Verse 2, Malachi 1, verses 2 through 5. One more time. Let's just read it to familiarize ourselves with it. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? 
Now God gets into this. He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Verse 4, even though Edom has said, we've been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will throw down. In other words, because Edom, because Esau has not changed his heart towards God, there's no submission to God. Hey, God is going to continue to judge. The judgment will be there, he says. Continuing there, he says, I will throw down. They may build, but I will throw down. They may be called the territory. They they shall be called the territory of wickedness. And the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Verse 5, your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. So our first sub-point this morning is that God's election is by grace. God's election is by grace. Notice with me that God didn't choose Jacob because of anything Jacob had done. Okay, God chose Jacob while he was still in the womb of Rebekah, Isaac's wife. Rebekah had twins, if you remember, way back in Genesis chapter 25. And, and she had her belly there was getting ready, you know, she was close to the time of birth. And there was a rumbling in her, tumbling, in her tummy. Some of you pregnant moms are going, yeah, that's what's happening right now in me. We have several pregnant moms right now. I think July is going to be a big church growth month for this, this, this fellowship. But listen, she's going, what is happening inside of my stomach? You know, I feel like there's a war going on inside of me. And God speaks to her and he says, yeah, that's Jacob and Esau. And they're both going to be leaders of two separate nations when they're born. And then God says something. And he, says, he says, but the younger is going to, or the older is going to serve the younger. Now, that was a concept that didn't make sense to the Hebrews. It didn't make sense in that time, in that ancient culture, because usually it was the firstborn who had the privileges in the family. He was blessed with the birthright, which was a, a symbol of God's blessing on his life to carry on the family name and to be the family priest, to be the one that was the spiritual head of the family. And so usually it was that firstborn that was the symbol of God's blessing. They received the birthright, which was a big deal in that ancient culture. But God says, no, we're going to do a little switch here. The younger is going to serve, or the, the older, I'm sorry, the older is actually going to serve the younger. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. It's on your screen. I'm reading from the English Standard Version on this, these verses. It says, and not only so... But also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Again, those verses, Paul the Apostle teaching that that God's election is by grace. It's not based on anything that anybody did. There's the two babies. They're both still in the womb. They haven't done technically anything of note except cause a war in Rebecca's tummy. And God says, you know what? I, I chose Jacob then. He, 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 had loved, he loved Jacob then, but he hated Esau. Now that brings us again to that phrase, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now this is the difficult phrase. 
This is the phrase that Christians stumble over. But listen, again, may I say this to you quite frankly this morning? God did not give us this phrase so that you would stumble over it in confusion. The furthest thing from God's heart when he gave Malachi this message was to cause confusion. His heart is to cause comfort. His heart is to cause comfort. Now, let's look at that word, the word hated in the Hebrew language. It's a strong word. It literally means strong dislike. But it carries with it, get this, it carries with it the sense that there was no relationship there. There was a complete lack of relationship. Very interesting, that sense. In other words, it's telling us that Esau basically had no relationship with God, his maker. This phrase has been the source of a lot of distress and confusion, as I said, but God didn't mean for this to be a confusing thing rather a comforting thing, we will never be able to fully understand how God's sovereign election works in complete harmony with humanity's responsibility to respond to God in free will. But know this, the doctrine of election that we're studying this morning, the doctrine of God's love, that it is an indisputable fact, it is meant to evoke a response in those that hear it. You have a responsibility before God as you hear that God loves his people this morning to respond to that love. Remember that we are chosen in love. God wants his people not to be confused but comforted by that fact. Remember, again, we read about God's explicit love in Deuteronomy 7. He said, I chose you because I love you. I didn't choose you for any other reason. You're just a special treasure to me. I set my love on you. I chose you not because you're great, not because you're different, but because I love you, because of grace. So the second sub-point today is that God's election results in blessing. And while Jacob went on to have 12 children and become the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation which still exists today and which God has plans to bring into eternity, that nation has been blessed and will be blessed because God's election always results in blessing. On the other hand, Esau, his twin brother, apart from any works, whom God had not chosen, this man grew up, despised his birthright. He treated it as if it were nothing to him, that symbolic part of God's blessing on his life. He went off and left the promised land. He founded a nation called Edom. And Edom was a nation that was constantly attacking Israel and making war against the people of God. In fact, they did so in a way that was really low and dirty. You see, they waited until the Assyrians and the Babylonians would attack. And then when those greater armies had come in to to ransack Israel and Judah, that's when Edom would come in. They would come in and they would also attack and they would run their raids under the cover of the bigger armies that were attacking uh, uh, Israel. And so because of that, God's judgment was pronounced against Edom. Now what's the message that God is getting across here to us this morning? The people are asking, God, well, he's saying, look, I've always loved you. And they're saying, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? 
And God responds to them by saying, hey, look over the border of Israel and see that while I'm with you, the land of Edom is impoverished. The land of Edom is facing judgment. The land of Edom is hurting right now. You see, when we think that we aren't being loved by God the way that we think we should, we need to take our eyes off of ourselves. And we need to look around at those who don't have a relationship with God. We need to look at others and see that while we are blessed to know God, while God has promised us He will never leave us nor forsake us, there are people in this world right now that are impoverished from the love of God. They are hurting and they need the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to see that they're enslaved to the empty things of this world that only destroy, they don't fulfill. God's election results in blessing, you guys. The blessing isn't material, the blessing isn't physical. It may be. God may choose to do that. But the blessing is always based on a real relationship with God. If you have a real relationship with God this morning, you will experience the blessings that come from knowing Jesus Christ. That's where the blessing is. It's in those moments at 4.44 a.m. when God wakes you up and puts a verse on your heart. And you go, no, there's no verse in Luke 4. It doesn't have 44 verses. And you look it up and you go, wow. And not only does it have a verse, but it has a message. That's for you. Hey, God loves you. In closing this morning, can I encourage you not to hang your head and say, does God really love me? But to look up and to say, Lord, thank you for choosing me to be a part of your family. See, a lot of people have a problem with this passage. The only problem I have is I can't get over the fact that God chose me. I can't get over the fact that God loves me enough to say, Phil, apart from your works, apart from you, what you've done or haven't done, I love you. You know that Jesus Christ loves you this morning? God demonstrates his love through actions. And God demonstrates his love for you and me by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross of Calvary for your sins. All of them, past, present, and future. So that when you receive the good news of Jesus Christ, you realize, wow, God, thank you for choosing me in Christ Jesus. Because God has chosen us. Election should make us less worried about the circumstances in our life, and more secure in the comfort of God's great love. Election should cause us to be thankful and grateful because of God's great love. When you and I realize that God chose us, not because of anything we've done, or anything that we have done, or, or haven't done, we can worship Him. We can say, thanks, Lord. Last of all, this morning, you might be asking the question, well, has God chosen me? Has God really chosen me? Listen, the only way to answer that question is to submit to God this morning, to have a soft heart, an open heart to the Lord, and to say, God, have you chosen me? 
I'm going to submit myself to you and I'm going to receive the good news about Jesus Christ. John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world. That's how great his love is. He loved an entire world. That he sent his only begotten son. His unique and only son Jesus. That's how much he loves you. He sent his son. So that everyone that would believe in him. Would receive the gift of eternal life. And would not perish. To avoid the judgment that is to come. The judgment that Edom could have avoided. The judgment that Esau could have avoided. Hey, we need to receive the good news. God's love is meant to evoke a response. And so this morning, in the presence of of all of us that are here, church family, I challenge you to respond to God's love. How are you going to respond to the love of God in your life this morning? 